Amen. Please be seated. Today I will read the passage from Matthew that gives us the account of Jesus' resurrection, one of the accounts in the Bible. Uh, But our focus will be on Acts chapter 2 that I have printed for you. I'll read just a few of those verses as we begin. Belief in the bodily, literal, not metaphorical, the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ is the belief on which every other Christian belief rests. I'm grateful for the elders and their preparation when they pray. They lead us collectively by what they say. And I was particularly moved this morning as I listened to our elder Galen lift the persecuted church. We live in dark days for many who claim faith in Christ. It's easy for us to forget that. I'm not here to guilt us because we have it so good, but we've got it really good. Most of us are going to go eat a big meal after this, relax for the rest of the day, while others are planning in the other parts of the world how to bury their loved ones who named the name of Christ, and they died for that. And the resurrection is the thing that gave them courage, even unto death. And it's the prayers that we pray for our brothers and sisters, wherever they may be, whether it be in Kenya, could be in North Korea, could be in Syria, could be in Sudan, could be in China, any which place where people are persecuted, killed for their faith. It's the prayers that God has ordained for us to pray that upholds them. And be sure that we will need those prayers someday ourselves. In this central message of the Bible, of the Christian faith, is for us to hear over and over and over again. Indeed, you have to believe it must have been the central core doctrine that those saints held on to to the end, knowing that their life would not end at the end of a sword or because of a gun. Here, Matthew 28, first, 1 through 7, where our hope lies. This is God's holy word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now after Jesus' resurrection, he remained on the earth for 40 more days before ascending into heaven. Uh, During those five-plus weeks, he appeared to his disciples and other close acquaintances numerous times. In fact, the most significant public appearance is alluded to in 1 Corinthians by Paul, where over 500 assembled believers saw him risen. Ten days after he ascended into heaven, we have the account that I want to read a few verses of that's on your insert. This is Peter now on the day of Pentecost, ten days after Jesus has ascended. Several thousand people are gathered here, people who are interested in what Peter says. Uh, They want to know what he has to proclaim. They are aware of what has happened with Jesus. 
And Peter is bringing that to them. The same Peter who was scared of a servant girl over a fire is now telling people, thousands of them, that they killed Jesus. So hear God's word as I read just a few verses of Acts 2, verses 22 through 24 in particular. It's the middle of his sermon that he gives on the day of Pentecost. God's word says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And praise God for that. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, please at this time refresh us by your spirit with the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus and all it means to us. Lord, please open people's eyes that they might see, that they might detect the grand sweep and power of Jesus' testimony to himself in his word. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for taking away the blindness of our minds and for sending your spirit that we might believe and praise you this day. Lord, it is our true desire that everyone come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. I ask for your mercy and for your grace so that everyone here and everyone we know will bow down to Christ and say as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Amen. It's Wilbur Chapman who wrote a hymn uh, that we don't sing here. I'm not even sure if it's in our hymnal, but it's in popular tune again today. I've heard it on the radio, sung in different ways. Living, he loved me, talking about Jesus. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, a glorious day. And that song attaches justification, being made right with God, with his resurrection. And it makes sense because it's his resurrection that validates everything he said and did, even his death on the cross. That's why in verse 24 of the passage that's on your insert, we find the central idea that I want to bring to our attention this morning. God raised him up, it says in verse 24, and it's what Peter preached, loosing the pangs of death, and here's the line, I hope you don't ever forget, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus could not be held by death, ultimately. I said, Jesus cannot be held by death, ultimately. Right? You know, uh, when I was learning how, whether, really I was learning whether or not God was calling me to be a pastor. It was in my, after my junior year of college, my former youth pastor was now a pastor of his own church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a small steel town that was, dwind- the town was dwindling and the church was small, and the congregation was very aged, and it was regular to have several members in the hospital at any given time. So just as a regular pastoral duty and really habit, he would go every Tuesday to the hospital. Sometimes other days, there would always be some congregant there. Some of the people I never saw in church, they were always in the hospital. The whole summer I was there, and I would go with him and visit. And admittedly, I was scared at first. I hadn't been into a hospital at much at age 20, just a few times. 
And so I didn't really know what to do or what to say to people, especially people who were near death in many cases. A lot of these cases were very serious. And we would go in and we would pray with them, and I would listen to my pastor talk to them about the comforting words we find here and how ultimate these words really are for everyone. Now, we don't think much about hospitals and being sick or getting old, but the fact is it's going to happen to all of us. We put it out of sight and we think it's out of mind, but it's true for everybody. What would you say to someone who's that close? And I listened to him over and over share these truths and hear these, saint, these saints talk about how they, these truths have grounded them and given them foundation at this time. And there was one lady in particular, about the fifth or sixth week of the summer, I felt more comfortable and he would let me go on my own. And there was a woman who was going to be in there for probably a few weeks if she would get out because she was very, very sick. But she was a strong uh, sister in Christ, and she would tell anybody she had an opportunity uh, the gospel, and she would be very outspoken about it. Now, it was an interesting dynamic in this hospital. It wasn't far from a seminary, a seminary that had long forsaken the truth of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection. They would send students to this hospital to be chaplains and go around and meet with people. I knew this was the case, but I never met one of the chaplains from there, and I always wondered, what would they say to somebody? If you don't believe the resurrection, what, what, what are you doing? And I remember sitting with this lady, and uh, I don't think the guy knew I was uh, contemplating ministry myself, and he came in and started reading from a little book and tried to give comfort. She stopped him. She said, hold up, hold up. And I learned later, this was her litmus test for everybody who came in to give spiritual advice. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, she would ask. And if you would pause at all, she'd say, no, thank you. I don't want whatever you have. You are no help to me. I'm not in a situation where I need somebody with metaphors, I remember her saying. And I, she would immediately go out, and there would be different students that would circulate through. And over the weeks that she was there, she would say the same thing to every one of them. And sadly, every one of them would have some, some long answer without just saying, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. They would give this long, metaphorical answer about how there's a moral to the story, and it was pathetic. And she'd say, stop, stop, you're not helping anyone. You can't help anyone. You have nothing to give anyone, she would say to the guy. That's absolutely true. And if the resurrection isn't true, I've got nothing to give you. Zero. It's a big illusion. It's a waste of our time. I would not be here because there are other things I could be doing if this life was not guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. Peter is bringing this very point to bear with people who have a background. They're Jewish people predominantly, so they know the story of God's promises of redemption. But to this point, they've thought mostly on physical terms. You remember with Palm Sunday, they were thinking that Jesus would come and free them from the Romans, just like all those other physical deliverances they had witnessed in their history. They thought another one of those was coming. But those are always temporary. They always end, and years and years go by before you see another one. And God never meant for us to rely upon those deliverances. Those deliverances were to show us the ultimate deliverance that Jesus brought, liberating us from the ultimate enemy, our ultimate fear, death, physical death, connected to our spiritual death as well. So Peter wants to bring this home now that they have witnessed the risen Christ. They know it's true, and so he's going to speak to them about the realities of God's plan and how they are to relate with it. He wants to speak to them about the fact that it is not possible, it was not possible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. And they must be confronted with that reality. The one who rises again, who defeats death, deserves, commands that we listen to what he says. 
verse 24. Again, a central verse to our thinking today. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. Let's begin looking at the verses. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. First, because the death and resurrection of Jesus was God's plan for redemption. You're not going to stop the plan of God. It was his plan. It could not be thwarted. For all the, the minute details that happened in Jesus' life, death, and then resurrection, none of them could have been stopped by any individual. As much as Pilate looked to be strong, or Herod, or the Romans, or the guards, or any of these people, they could not thwart the plan of God. They were actually tools of the hand and plan of God. And because of this, the grave could not hold him. Look at verse 22 as Peter addresses the crowd. Men of Israel, hear these words. And ladies, don't be offended. This is just a way of describing or addressing a large crowd. This crowd would have had men, women, and children. We know this to be the case as the passage moves on. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He grounds Jesus in history by saying, Jesus of Nazareth. People have all traveled to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, uh, the feast of Pentecost as they knew it. So they're people from all over Israel, and they would identify themselves by their name and where they're from. So by saying Jesus of Nazareth, they all know Jesus, the historical figure who they are aware of. They had seen with their own eyes in many cases. A man attested to you by God. So they knew Jesus existed, and they also know something else about Jesus, that God himself gave Jesus the ability to do wonders, to do mighty works, to do miracles, these signs. Now, when we read the Bible, we see all sorts of miraculous things done. But remember, the Bible spans centuries and centuries. And really, there are sizable gaps, at least in the biblical record, for these miracles that happen. Then as you further analyze, say, the Old Testament and watch how God interacts and interjects himself into natural law and creates something that's, that's a miracle, uh, you notice that there are only a handful of people that God actually uses to do miracles through. He does many mighty things, but as far as individuals with these abilities, if you take away Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, you're left with not too many other miracle workers. More miracles, but miracle workers. So these are four key figures all the Jews would have been aware of. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. But now you have Jesus doing all similar miracles to all these and even ultimately being raised again from the dead. Clearly Jesus is in an elite class. Uh, As they thought highly of these others who did these miracles, Jesus has to be at least in that class, attested to by God because of the signs and wonders he did. And this is important because Jesus' plan, of course, as he raises and rises, is to send his spirit so his apostles can do similar signs as the church is established. So people know th- these are the apostles of Christ because they can do these signs and these wonders and these miracles. That's why we know there aren't apostles any longer. Because that gift was taken as the word was finished. Not very many people that God had chosen to do these miracles through And Jesus, attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. So we're starting to see Peter remind the people of what they saw and what is true about God's hand upon Jesus to do these things. 
verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, he doesn't let them off the hook. They're responsible for what they've done. But he also doesn't want them to think that they are in any way sovereign over it or that they are the ones that actually orchestrated what it all means. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You, the Jews, gave him over to the Romans. You couldn't even do it yourself, but you used lawless men, people who are disconnected from biblical revelation and the gift of the word. They used the Romans to do what they wanted to do, collectively as a people. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God equals the grave could not hold Christ. Now, foreknowledge is a general word, and out of context, it's difficult to discern. But in context, we can see what it means. It's only meant to bolster the definite plan of God, that he sees his plan working itself out exactly as he has willed. That's how we understand foreknowledge to communicate here. What is this definite plan? We're given glimpses of it throughout the Scripture. Early on in Genesis 3, after the fall of man and sin has come and death has come to their souls, God promises, as he speaks against the serpent who brought this fall, as he speaks in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the serpent, the devil, and the woman. This is going to be the way the rest of the story works itself out, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, that figure of all the women's offspring, the woman's offspring, the seed, Jesus himself, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the plan of God is revealed right there, that he's going to bring one to undo what the first Adam did. But in so doing, his heel will be bruised when he crushes the head of the, the snake. And that's the cross. That's a picture of the cross. It's God's definite plan, lest anyone think that they pulled this off on God. This is part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And that's why the grave would not be able to hold Jesus, because the plan of God was for him to be raised again. The sacrifices that are uh, explained in the Old Testament that are so, so graphic and so, so brutal, those are all pictures of the cross that Jesus would bear when he came, the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb. Isaiah, the prophet, speaking in a terrible time in Israel's history, points to the promised coming and sacrifice that was needed for them in Isaiah 53, talking of Messiah, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's the plan of the Lord, the definite plan of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus himself uses the words of the 22nd Psalm when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of many times we realize the Psalm wasn't talking about David ultimately, It was really a prophecy about Jesus, the final David, the final king, the great king, the anointed one himself. Verse 23, once again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You could not kill him without God's will being in place, and he could not be stopped from defeating the grave because of God's will in place. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The pangs of death mean the sorrows of the travails that accompany dying. That which holds all of us, God 
remove those and raise Jesus from the dead. Could not stop him because it was his plan. It was his purpose. It was God's will. Verse 25 gives us a little bit of a divine commentary about the 16th Psalm. I just mentioned the 22nd Psalm, but notice what it says here is David quotes a psalm. For David says, or Peter quotes David's psalm. For David says concerning him in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. So here's the prophecy of not leaving Jesus in the grave. Here's the promise to, to David who knew that God promised to always have a king on the throne, ultimately fulfilled in Messiah. So this psalm that David penned, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, is not about David the king back in 1000 BC, but rather about the Messiah king who in 33 AD would be put in a tomb and not allowed to see corruption as God raised him. Death could not keep Jesus because it was the plan of God to raise him. And it's not just a thousand years before Jesus' time where believers looked forward to a physical resurrection. In fact, one of the oldest characters in the Bible, Job, gives testimony in Job 9. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. This is a guy that lived before the time or at the time of Abraham, 2000 B.C. And while not developed in understanding of this truth, recognizes the promise or the assurance of God that there would be a resurrection eventually. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Job writes further, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me, Job. Ancient Job says. You see, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God about his death is also applied to his resurrection, and therefore death could not keep Jesus in the grave. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus because the death and resurrection of Jesus was God's plan for redemption. Notice a second point. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus in the grave because the resurrection was by God's approval and power. The resurrection was not just a part of the plan. It was personally applied to Jesus in God's approval of Jesus as the sacrifice for us. Keep in mind, there are thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe millions of sacrifices before the time of Christ made by the Jews to picture Christ. God never raised up any of those animals that were sacrificed as pictures. Because none of them were ultimately worth it. They were or worthy of it. They were only pointing to the one who was. So by raising Jesus, that stands in stark uh, distinction from all the other sacrifices made. And the reason is that God approved of Jesus' sacrifice, finally. No need for others. Because he approved Jesus' death, he would not keep him in the grave. Acts chapter 2 Again, verse 24, God raised him up. God did it. God the Father raised God the Son, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Uh, Psalm 16 again, this reference. This is the approval of God the Father about God the Son, the Messiah. Uh, Because he approved of Jesus, he would not leave him in the grave. He would not allow him to see corruption because he validated Jesus' worth as the sacrifice for us. Look down at verse 29 on the passage before us. Brothers, I say, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, in case anybody was still thinking this is just a psalm of David alone, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. This can't be about King David that you're all thinking back concerning the glory days. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See very clearly here, God approved of Christ as the offering for sin. How do we know this? We know this because he did not leave Jesus dead. He did not leave him in the grave. God does not abandon Jesus to Hades. God does not allow Jesus' flesh to see corruption. The reason you need to be in union with Christ by faith is because he loves Jesus so much, he will not allow you to remain in the grave either. That's the whole basis for your hope, is union with Christ by faith in him. Because God will never, ever turn his back on his son. He never has, never will. And if you're in him, he will not turn his back on you either. I remember very vividly and personally, it it comes up often, maybe once a week I think about this point in my life when I was in my teen years. It was a real crossroad for me, a genuine crossroad. It was clear to me at some point that either Jesus was who he claimed or the other option that, as I saw it, was that life is basically a strange, inexplicable absurdity. You say, well, what about the other religions? Have you weighed those? Yes. And that's the problem. You see, all the other religions, however they are shaded, come down to a human's alleged ability to follow a certain code to either be reborn and reborn and rebirthed and rebirthed or reach some nirvana through this karma and all, and, or just simply some other religion's book with a code of ethics that you hope if you follow you will, might make it. They're all basically some shade of that. Whereas Christianity is very different than that. One does fulfill a righteous standard in our stead, and we're united to him by faith in him because of a gift given to us by God himself. It's so personal, it's so... It it explains how God's justice can still be upheld and he can be gracious at the same time. And it's all based on a living Savior. If you don't have a living Savior, you just have another person making promises that don't mean anything because he's dead. So I still come down to the fact that it's either Jesus was raised again and it changes everything for us, or it's all an absurdity that we can't really explain. Because it wasn't enough for Jesus just to claim an ability to help us be right with God, there had to be a validation from God himself about Jesus and his authority. The resurrection is that validation. That's why it's central. The resurrection is proof of God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice for us. Without his resurrection, Jesus is no real help to anyone. It is not substantially different from all the various religious prophets and gurus whose corpses still lay in the ground somewhere. 
I mean, would you trust a builder to build your house when they can't build their own? Would you trust a mechanic who can't fix his own car? Why would you trust a prophet who claims to know the way to eternal life but could not defeat death themselves? The crossroads is real. And I hope everybody sees it. Either the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true or Albert Camus was right about life as an absurdity. All religions do not lead to the same place. Only one religion, and I put that in quotes, is led by a living Savior. If he's not alive, how could there be real answers with other dead promise makers? If Jesus didn't rise, I say we should just all fake as much meaning about this absurd life as we can to pass our days and hope that it ends upon physical death. And a lot of people fill churches with that fakeness. They just go to it because they think maybe somehow it'll help them. I'm saying it won't help you a bit if Jesus is still dead. You're wasting your time. I would not use this as the way I fake through it. But if Jesus did rise, we should all do our best to tell every person we know so they can be saved from what awaits those who are not in Christ, the living Savior. I'm convinced by the eyewitness, the eyewitnesses recorded in Scripture and in history, for that matter. And also, without apology, I'm convinced by what the Bible describes as an assurance from God's Spirit that Jesus did rise. I'm not bashful about this because I really, really believe it. I'm not blind in what I'm saying to you because I'm convinced of it. And I don't really gain anything by making you think it. Not personally, anyways. I'm not out to get people to follow so I somehow get richer by it or more influenced by it or gain some name for myself. In fact, I'm guessing at some point it's going to hurt me more than help me. I just know it's true. So this is why I put it forth to you. God raised Jesus by his power because he approved of him. If you want to be approved by God, you have to be in Christ. If you still doubt God's approval of Jesus, look at verse 33 of the passage on your insert before us in Acts 2. It says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. He exalts him by ascending, bringing Jesus into heaven, seating him at the right hand of himself. And that is a statement of equality. That's a statement where a king who has a scepter or a sword to rule sits at his throne, and the person seated, seated at the right hand could reach over and stop the scepter of the sword. It's an equality with the one sitting in the throne. This is saying Jesus himself is God. He sits at my right hand, the Father says. In fact, we've already seen a couple psalms that we thought were about David or the original audience thought were about David and they're really about Christ. Here's the one that's most mentioned in Scripture, in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, here's a quote of Psalm 110 now, The Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God approved of Christ and approves of Jesus, and therefore, if we are in him, we are approved of too. It's not possible, it was not possible, that death could hold Jesus in the grave because the resurrection 
was by God's approval and by his power. Finally, it was not possible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. So therefore, in light of that reality, our resurrection is certain because of God's plan and power through Christ. People on earth can basically be put into two categories. There are two Adams. The first Adam we all find ourselves in initially, the one who sinned and is left in his sin, left dead in soul, unable to make himself right with God, the sons and daughters of Adam we are. That Adam can no longer make himself right before God. So God sent his son as the second Adam. And when we're in the second Adam, that Adam lived perfectly and qualified to be our sacrifice, to take the punishment we should have. And he paid for it, and God proved that he accepted it by raising him again. You have to be in the second Adam. Because if Jesus didn't rise, we're all still under the first Adam. That's the problem. And this problem is addressed by the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians when he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, and he hasn't been raised again, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Paul says, in fact now, Christ has been raised from the dead. That changes everything. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, the second Adam, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, the first one to rise again. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ, all of us who are in Christ. Christ is the first fruits. That is, he's the prototype for resurrection. Yes, unless Jesus comes, we're all going to die physically. But that is a blip in the eternal, eternal scheme of things. Because when Christ comes again, we'll be given new bodies. We'll be given glorified bodies like the body Jesus has the one he was given when he raised again. The prototype, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the long-term blessed plan we have. I think part of the problem is we're really busy, and I know I am, and I have lots of great things happening in my life that I enjoy. Challenges, yes, but many blessings, and they take up a lot of my thinking. And I tend to think that, you know, what's coming in the next couple years is really, really important. The next few years is really, really important. And they are, they are important. But it's a real short, short blip for eternity. And if I could learn to think heavenly, and I don't mean so heavenly that you're no earthly good. I don't mean that. I just mean if I could think long-term, it would help me endure the things now. To make me, it would make me more faithful now if I thought about what's assured in the future. I have to wonder what goes through the mind of martyrs who die like they have died in these weeks. Is it the sureness of the resurrection? I think it's got to be that. Uh, what about the Christian faith makes them stand firm? when they could simply maybe speak words and get out of it, but they don't, why is that? Because they're sure of what's coming, and it helps them stand firm now. And what does God do with that? He uses that testimony to convince other people this is true, because these people are not scared of, of death. The thing we're so scared of, they're not scared of to the point where they're willing to die for it because they don't think it ends. And it actually works to multiply God's church, God's people, What's the right response to the resurrection? I love what this passage describes. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, this is an important verse to get the order right here. Because this verse can be misused. 
when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, notice a few things. They're listening to the sermon by Peter. We don't have recorded for us that anyone said, scam, that's a scam. He's not telling the truth. It's not right. They're not protesting. We're not getting that. And there's thousands here. We know because later, that's how many were added to the church that day. So a huge crowd listening. And it, the passage says, collectively, they were cut to the heart. That is a, a term for, for conviction. And conviction can only come to people when God brings it to them. He has to give us a capacity to receive conviction. I would suggest these people were believing now, and now they were reacting the way we ought to react. That's to repent when we have been given new life because we have our eyes open and we see what cost uh, this came, what this cost was for Jesus on our behalf. They're cut to the heart by what Peter said. They didn't make excuses and say, I didn't do anything that bad to deserve this. That's not what they say. They were cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest, brothers, what shall we do? They say, brothers. So they believe they're with them. We agree with what you're saying to the disciples. And now to these believers, Peter says to them, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn unto Christ. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Shortly thereafter, the Spirit is poured out upon them. And the Spirit indwells believers from that point forward in a way that's different than we see before. Be identified with Christ publicly. That's what it's meant to say. Turn from your sin. Perhaps the verse that gives us the most direction in how we ought to respond to the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. The passage that Pastor Nathan read is our assurance of pardon. It comes there. Listen to it as we conclude. In 1 Corinthians 15, the end of this great chapter on the resurrection and its importance, we read, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the verse, verse 58, to take with you. Therefore, in light of the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Stay firm in this truth. Don't get budged by unbelief immovable. It's okay to be stubborn about this point. Because if we give up this point, we have no other point. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection absolutely changes our perspective on life. As I've told you before and I tell you again, I'm not saying go, go, go take a different job. I'm saying the job you are doing right now or the vocation you have or the life you're living or the household you're leading should be radically changed by the perspective you have based on the resurrection. The resurrection assures that no believer actually dies or ceases to exist in any ultimate way. Rather, physical death is a transition towards the final glorious resurrection that we await. Knowing that eternal life is guaranteed through resurrection gives us completely different perspectives on everything. This isn't all there is. This is just a small part of what there is. But what there is matters for his glory. And this is, again, why Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, who we know as, since we've been studying this, these books, 
they struggle with this eternal view. He says, we don't lose heart to the Corinthians, to us, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, on this Easter, once again, remember, it was not possible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. And therefore, it is not possible that you will be held in the grave either. Let's pray. I will use the words of Gregory in the late 6th century. Lord God, it is only right with all the powers of our heart and mind to praise you, Father, and your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Father, by your wondrous condescension of loving kindness toward us, your servants, you gave up your Son. Dear Jesus, you paid the debt of Adam for us to the eternal Father by your blood poured forth in loving kindness. You cleared away the darkness of sin by your magnificent and radiant resurrection. You broke the bonds of death and rose from the grave as conqueror. You reconciled heaven and earth. Our life had no hope of eternal happiness before you redeemed us. Your resurrection has washed away our sins, restored our innocence, and brought us joy. How inestimable is the tenderness of your, Lord to, your love to us sinners. We thank you for this. Change us because of this. In Jesus' name, amen.